Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I'm thankful to be with you all again. I really, it always is such a, a joy for us. Uh, to be with you, to be able to worship with you. Uh, we enjoyed seeing many of you at, um, or my wife and I enjoyed seeing some of you at the uh, TGC Women's Conference. So men don't hate, I enjoyed it. It was pretty good. Um, but we enjoyed seeing you there, um, hearing how God was working in your lives and ways in which he was growing you. And I just genu- genuinely want to say, Sonia and I are deeply thankful to God for the work he's done in your lives individually and as a church to give you the the love the faith in the gospel that you have the joy in the gospel of christ that you have and the um the joy you have in seeing the gospel spread among the nations Um, it was evident to me that that really was the heartbeat of your church when i first met pastor jason he and i i randomly emailed him um, while Sonia and I were fundraising um, to go to the nation of Turkey. So for those, um, I, I believe we've had the chance to meet most, if not all of you, and I presume most of you by now at least know a bit of the ways in which God has led us. We <clears throat> um, began fundraising to plant a church in the country of Turkey. Uh, we went to Turkey, uh, learned the language, and we were involved in um, planting a church in, this, in a city called Kutahya. God saw fit to have us um, kicked out of, removed from the country of Turkey, and is now redirecting us to the country of Cambodia. So I remember when I uh, emailed Pastor Jason, and I said, I'm, um, fundra- I'm meeting with uh, people, I'm fundraising, I want to go, my wife and I uh, are endeavoring to go plant a church in the country of Turkey. And he and I met, and the church was just getting started, was a year at most, two years old at that point, and um, Pastor Jason and your love for the gospel and um, the gospel spreading this community was evident to me then. You guys were leaving Greenville Grace and coming here to plant a, a strong and healthy, vibrant gospel witness for Troy, and then even in those early stages, um, you partnered with us, you began praying with us, giving sacrificially even to the ministry that God had called us to. And that really is a testimony to the, the work of grace that God has done among you and giving you the faith and joy that you have in his gospel. So I want to thank God for that this morning, and I want to just say thank you as well for your friendship and your partnership. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be um, moving to uh, Cambodia in just about three months. So we're going to be leaving in the, in the month of October. Um, we just got Theo's uh, first passport. So we're about to send off our passports for our visas and buy tickets over the next month. Um, And so we would ask that you would be uh, praying with that. Uh, We're looking at leaving first week of October. So we'll arrive into the country, spend a couple months getting set up, and then we'll begin um, the process of full-time language studies and learning our third language. So last language I learned, I lost my hair. I don't know what I'm going to lose this time, but um, maybe a limb this time, but it'll just be a flesh wound. So there's a reference there. Uh, We're also really excited to share with you, um, there is a really exciting update since the last time we were with you. We were praying for God to 
uh, provide us teammates, individuals whom we um, had shared and aligned theology with, and also um, approach to ministry, approach to church planting. We were really praying for God to provide this. Uh, living overseas, uh, living cross-culturally, learning another language, uh, that's a difficult uh, work in and of itself. <clears throat> and then trying to minister, um, make disciples and establish churches and train uh, elders uh, for ministry, uh, that's tough work in and of itself, especially cross-culturally. You're met with many challenges. And trying to do that on your own is very difficult. And so we were praying for God to provide us with teammates, and um, he graciously saw fit to provide uh, to answer that prayer. Um, there is a family from our church. They actually have been raising funds to go to the country of China. Uh, the door closed on them, and they actually came to us, and they said, what do you guys think about working together as a team? What do you think about us all going to Cambodia together? So after a few weeks of praying together, getting counseled together, uh, we concluded that it was God who providentially had redirected us from Turkey and had closed the door for them to go into China. And uh, all these seemingly disconnected and even at times discouraging um, events all kind of conspired together to bring both of our families together to now go plant churches in Cambodia. Their names are Jesse and Hannah, and uh, their, their little kiddos are going with them as well. They're expecting their third kid in, uh, in October, so they're going to be joining us in Cambodia in January. And so we just want to ask that you would uh, praise God with us for answering this prayer. And if you would now begin to pray that God would use us and, and use us as a team uh, to preach the gospel and to see disciples made and churches, gospel preaching churches established in Cambodia and cities and towns and villages where there are none. Uh, we're going to be in John 3 this morning, as you're already aware of. I don't know if that was intentional or if that's merely um, coincidence or providential. I didn't tell Josiah until it was Friday or yesterday that I was planning to preach from John chapter 3, so thankful for the way in which God orchestrated that. Uh, I want to ask you a question that I think John 3 answers. Now, you might hear the question and think to yourself, I don't see how John uh, 3 answers that question. I don't see where you're getting that from. I'll explain. Will God make all things right? When will God make all things right? This is a question that even um, those of us who have heard the gospel and are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, and we, we know the word, and we know the plan of redemption, and we're awaiting the sure fulfillment of all of God's good promises, we know, at least cognitively and abstractly, yes, God is going to make all things right. And yet, we have these moments in our lives individually, nationally, globally, where we see events and just the endless pr proliferation of evil, and we think, God, when are you going to do it? What are you going to do about this? Why are you allowing this to happen? And perhaps it's possible that you're here this morning and um, you've been introduced to Christianity, um, but you're not yet a believer. Or perhaps maybe you just outright um, reject the faith. You don't adhere to Christianity. And you've thought to yourself, how can this be true? Um, all that Christians say about God being love. God being good and caring for people and caring for his creation. How can all of this be true and yet there's an abundance of evil, decay, and death? 
Maybe you thought that. I certainly thought that before I was a Christian. John 3 gives up, helps to lay the foundation for an answer to this question. Now, John 3 doesn't answer this question directly. But what John 3 teaches lays the foundation for us to provide an answer, a reason for why these things seem to happen, why there's this ongoing um, uh, proliferation of evil, and what it is that God is and will do about it. So I think by the end of John 3, we can look to John 3, and we can look to this question, will God make all things right, and say, ah, okay, I, I, I see Uh, what John 3 has to say about this. I see what God is doing. I see how this answers this question. So when we come to John chapter 3, we see an encounter, a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a question for Jesus. Jesus gives him a a response. I think it'd be helpful to begin to answer our, our question and to see what it is that John 3 is teaching by following this dialogue in four ways. One, a pressing question. Two, a perplexing response. Three, a problem remedied. And then lastly, a power unleashed. So let's first look at verses one through two, a pressing question. Look if you would at verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, when you look at verses one through two, you might be thinking, okay, Glenn, you said that there is a pressing question here, but uh, apparently you don't know grammar too well because there's no no question mark there. Um, What we see in John chapter three, verses one through two is an implicit question. So, This man, Nicodemus, this religious ruler, comes to Jesus by night, and um, he makes a statement, and he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs unless God is with him. The fact that he's asking an implicit question is evidenced by the response that Jesus gives him. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, this man who knew the Old Testament, he was trained in the Hebrew scriptures. He had this hope. He had this expectation on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures that a man was going to come to save God's people and to build God's kingdom. And he knew from the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that when this man came, his coming and the building, the startup, the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth would be demonstrated and manifested by the miraculous signs that this man would do. So now he sees Jesus performing these signs, and he comes to Jesus And he says, Jesus, I see you doing these signs. God must be with you, otherwise you couldn't do them. Jesus then responds and says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom, you need to be born again. So there's an implicit question in Nicodemus's observation and Nicodemus's remark to Jesus. What is he asking? 
He's implicitly asking Jesus, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come and build God's kingdom? Are you the one to come and fulfill all of God's promises to us, his people? In order to understand this, we need to understand what it exactly uh, he was anticipating from the Old Testament. And in order to do this, you have to go not just back to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Isaiah. You, have to go, you can't go back just to Abraham in Genesis 12. You have to go all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, written by Moses to show God's old covenant people uh, their history, how God brought them out, how God started all things, how he started this world and then brought Israel out. He writes in Genesis 1, not just to, sh not to show Israel their history, but to show Israel the history and even the problem of and with the whole world. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, verses 26 through 28, God makes Adam, and then we read in uh, Genesis chapter 2 that he also makes from Adam Eve, the first woman, and he commissions them. He gives them a task to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He places them in the Garden of Eden with the anticipation and the expectation that they're going to fulfill this task in the garden and then slowly but surely and progressively expand to the, uh, to the world so that this world will be subdued, dominated by Adam, through his obedience to this task that God gave him in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, this world would have been filled with worshipers of God. This world would never have known evil. It would have never experienced the entrance of evil. It would have never experienced human death. It would have never experienced hard labor. It would have known harmony. It would have known completeness. And it would have known unmitigated, unbroken relationship with God. But that's not how the story goes. We look then to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that a serpent has entered the garden, Satan. And he tempts Eve, and along with Eve, he tempts Adam. And instead of fulfilling this task that God gave them, they fall to the temptation of the serpent, of Satan. They eat from the tree that God commanded them not to eat. And we see then in Genesis 3, 14 through 16, God pronounces judgments upon creation, upon man, and upon the serpent. Not only does he pronounce judgment, but he also delivers a promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. He promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, this is what the Old Testament is unfolding, elaborating, and progressive re re progressively revealing for us. They are slowly but surely revealing to man how it is that God's going to fulfill his promise in Genesis 3.15 of bringing a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and restore the paradise that we lost in the Garden of Eden. How he will restore his fellowship and his communion with man. This is the purpose for which he calls out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and gives Abraham this promise of, of seed and of kings and of land. 
This is the reason for which he makes a covenant with David and promises David an everlasting kingdom and a seed who would sit upon the throne forever, ruling in righteousness and judgment. This is precisely what it is that Nicodemus was waiting for. You see, by the time you get to um, the Old Testament prophets, they anticipate this day in which God's Messiah, his anointed one, the Christ, will come to fulfill these Old Testament promises and who will bring about God's kingdom. And it is a kingdom characterized by righteousness, justice, and mercy. It is a kingdom that will renew the entire world, the entire cosmos. This is what Nicodemus is waiting for. This is what Nicodemus is asking. Nicodemus is asking Jesus, are you the one to come and restore creation and restore humanity to God? Are you the one to bring about God's kingdom of righteousness and justice and mercy? This is the question that you and I ask today, isn't it? We see injustice in the world. We see humans, we see nations, we see economies um, destroyed by pandemics such as COVID-19. We see um, impoverished countries and boys and girls starving. We see inequalities, we see hate crimes, and we too cry out and wonder, God, when will you restore and renew this earth from injustices, from unrighteousness? When will man be characterized by mercy? We're asking God, when will your kingdom come? That's precisely what Nicodemus is asking. And it's significant that it's Nicodemus who is asking this question. Nicodemus isn't an average Joe. In his day and in his time, he was very much a cultural elite. So he, um, he, he, wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't a Middletonian, uh, hillbilly elegy. He wasn't just an Ohioan on a farm. He was one of the cultural elites up in New York City, shaping culture, dictating the direction of the country. He was the teacher of the people. Why does he come to Jesus by night? Well, of course, we can't ultimately, and we can't objectively know that, but it's pretty interesting when we look at John 3. It seems significant that he comes at night, not merely because he comes at night to hide the fact that he's meeting Jesus. He doesn't want others to see. It seems fairly evident um, in his conversation with Jesus that perhaps even those around him already knew that he intended to go meet with Jesus to find out who it is that this Jesus is, who this Jesus was. Why is John so careful to let us know that Nicodemus comes at night? Well, it's almost assuredly because all throughout this gospel, beginning all the way back in chapter one, John is playing with this theme, this idea of light and darkness, of men being in complete moral darkness and men coming to Christ and thus coming to the light. Almost assuredly, John is careful to record for us this little seemingly insignificant detail that Nicodemus came at night to show us Nicodemus also is in complete darkness. He also is in complete moral and spiritual darkness. He too 
needs to know who this Messiah is. Now, Jesus responds to his question, are you the one to come and build God's kingdom to bring about this existence, this kingdom of righteousness and restore this world from brokenness? He, he answers his question, certainly, but in a really puzzling manner. So the second thing we see here is a perplexing question. Look, if you would, at verse number three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if we don't understand everything that we've just stated about Nicodemus and the implicit question he's asking us, this particular, Jesus's response makes absolutely no sense. But it also helps us to understand the question that Nicodemus was asking. Because here Nicodemus says, Jesus, we know uh, that you are come from God. God is with you. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. What? what? That, that makes absolutely no sense. It's a perplexing response. Even Nicodemus himself in verse 4 says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom? You want to know when the kingdom's coming? You want to be a part of God's existence, the state of, per of perfection and righteousness and justice? If you want to see it, you need to be born again. What? Nicodemus, understandably, is thinking, how can there be a kingdom and I can't see it? Right? They're, they, are, they're, they're, they were presently under the rule of Rome. And he's thinking, how can you claim that there's this kingdom that's not manifest to the eyes? How can I um, enter a kingdom that can't be seen? Nicodemus is perplexed. And Jesus says, you need to be born again in order to see this kingdom. So this is a word to you and to me today. We want to experience a state of perfection, of sinlessness, of justice. If we want to enter that state, we need to be born again. If we want to enter that state, we need to enter into the kingdom of God, because that's the only place in which this is present, the only place in which it will ultimately be present. And if we want to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you got to be born again. So are you someone who you look at the brokenness in the world and you wonder, how can this be made right? How can things be put to right? Will things be uh, restored and renewed one day? Well, the answer to that is yes. God's answer to that is yes. And if you want to see and experience that, you've got to be born again. So what on earth does it mean to be born again? And why do we need to be born again to enter, to enter into this kingdom of righteousness and holiness and justice? There are a lot of cultural conceptions, kind of pop culture understandings of what it means to be born again. Christianity has had such a dominant impact upon our uh, Western society and our country in particular that uh, a lot of these notions just are, are common. 
uh, all throughout our, our cultural references and, and our understanding. So this whole idea of a new birth, being born again, uh, is pretty common in our society. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? Maybe it means a second chance. Maybe to be born again means you've had a rough past. You've made a lot of mistakes. And so a new birth is you starting over. You're starting anew. You're a new man. Maybe it's a 1970s pop and funk band. I looked that up and was surprised to find out that there actually was a 1970s funk band called The New Birth. So if you, you don't take my word for it, go look it up. Google it this afternoon. Maybe, um, as, maybe as Christians, we would say, well, it's justification. It means to be justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. That's not quite right either. Uh, we have to be careful when, we, when you and I as believers uh, and students of the word, when we come to John 3, we have to be careful to not read Nicodemus's dialogue with Jesus, Nicodemus's question and Jesus's response anachronistically. We, we can't come to this text and ask or, or think that Nicodemus is asking exactly the same question that you and I are asking. You see, Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus, verses 1 through 2, and ask him, how can I be saved? How can I be right with God? How can I be justified? It might be tempting for us to look at verses 1 through 2 and think, Nicodemus wants to know how to get saved. But that's not quite right. One, as we already investigated in verses 1 through 2, that's not quite the question Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is asking. And it wouldn't even entirely make sense for him to ask that question. You see, Nicodemus was part of the old covenant. He viewed himself as an individual already in a covenant relationship with God. He wasn't asking Jesus, how can I get saved and have a relationship with God? He viewed himself as one already possessing that. And so Jesus isn't telling him the plan of salvation, how to repent of his sins and, and get saved though that certainly has, this certainly has a word for that. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, we see here in John 3, Nicodemus is asking when the kingdom is coming. Jesus says you have to be born again. Jesus is saying you need to be regenerated. You need to be made new. You need to be brought to life spiritually so we could say the new birth to be born again is to experience the future resurrecting power of god in the present to be born again means to be resurrected to new spiritual life to be regenerated it's pretty interesting uh, even this word regeneration the only other time in which we really see it used in quite this way is Matthew 19, verses 28 through 29, where Jesus refers to the regeneration of the world, when the world's going to be made new. So when we look here at chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, what does it mean to be born again? To be born again means to be brought to life from our state of sinless death of spiritual death and to be brought into the kingdom of God. You see, the problem that we, that we referenced in Genesis 3 is not just a problem with Adam and Eve. It's not just a problem with Israel. 
It's a problem with all humanity. And that is, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we sinned with them. They were representing you and me. And because they sinned, you sinned. Because Adam sinned, I sinned. And because he became a sinner by nature, I became a sinner by nature. I died spiritually. This is why we are born without relationship with God. This is why we are born cut off from him. This is also why we are born and our children are born with an, with an already present inclination to sin. Sonia and I are new parents. Our child is just coming up on six months. And even already, we can pick up on little cues that he's acting a bit deceitfully, um, mischievously. Any one of us who have had kids, we look at them and we think, we think about between months one to four, they're pretty cute. And then like from months five on, they start to get an attitude and become a bit mischievous and deceitful. And we're like, wow, you're a wicked kid. Um, that is inherent to us. And it's because we died with Adam. We too are sinners. So you might hear that and you might think, because Adam sinned, I sinned. He represented me. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't even make sense. How can a man that you claim who lived thousands and thousands of years ago represent me and because he did wrong, now I'm guilty for that. Now I'm a sinner because of that. But the reality is, and the fact of the matter is, is we are represented uh, all throughout our lives. We have representatives in any and every way. Our presidents, our parents, our teachers, our coaches, they're all representatives. And as they succeed, we succeed. As they fell, we fell. They represent us. And in the same way, Adam represented us in the garden. He fell, and with him, we became sinners. So the new birth, then, is to save us from that death, to bring us back to life spiritually, and thus enter into the kingdom of God. So then Jesus says in verse number five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, verse six, verse six is a bit perplexing. It's, it's a bit um, interesting. Here, it seems as if Jesus is saying, um, Nicodemus, if you, we might read this and think, okay, Nicodemus, if you want to get saved, you need to get baptized. Well, that's not quite right. One of the reasons we know that is because we look to 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells us he wasn't even sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It doesn't seem like Paul would say in order to be born again, you need to be baptized and then bifurcate the preaching of the gospel and baptism the way in which he did. Maybe in verse 6, Jesus is saying that things are born physically, flesh and you were born one way you were born physically and now you need to be born another way spiritually well that's i don't think that's quite right either because it seems here there's one birth in mind what it what is jesus saying in verse six and how does it connect to this idea of the new birth in verse number six jesus actually is alluding back to an old testament passage namely ezekiel 36 in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God gave a promise that one day when he sent his Messiah, his Messiah would come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And when he did so, he would bring his people to life spiritually. He would pour water out upon them and bring them back to new life. And Jesus is saying, 
That is happening now. I have come to do that work. So when someone is born again, they're entering into this promised kingdom that God made to his people in the Old Testament. So it's a perplexing response. But what we see here about the nature of this kingdom that God is bringing about, this work that Jesus is doing, is that it is a new creation. God, through the work of the Messiah Jesus, is establishing a new creation. He's renewing the world. He's renewing all of humanity. And he's begun that work even now through the outpouring of the Spirit. He has come and in the work of the Messiah has established his kingdom upon earth. And it's a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom that, as John uh, tells us later on in this chapter, in this book, it's a kingdom that is not of this earth. It's a kingdom of the new creation. Those who enter into this kingdom are those who have been brought to life by the Spirit of God and enter into this realm of the new creation in the midst of the old fallen creation, this world. This is why all throughout the Old Testament, we see these references to new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new man. In 2 Corinthians 4, we see Paul referencing the work of the original creation to the preaching of the gospel. What Paul is saying, or what uh, uh, John is showing us here in John chapter 3, is that Christ has fulfilled this promise of bringing about a new creation, and he's done it in the midst of the old creation, and that's present now in the lives of those who believe in the gospel of Christ. They've entered into the realm of the new creation, namely God's kingdom. And it is a new creation because it's characterized by the indwelling of the spirit and an overcoming of the old man, of the old man being put, death, being put to death. So it's a perplexing response. But he says, Nicodemus, even you, you teacher of the Pharisees, you teacher of the Jews, if you want to see this kingdom, if you want to enter into the realm of the new creation, you too need to be born again. And then lastly, and we'll end here, we see a power unleashed. So I want to go back to the question that I posed at the beginning. Will God make all things right? When we look to the world and the evil abundant within the world, what is God doing about it? What will he do about it? Well, in John chapter 3, we see a power unleashed. This doesn't directly answer that question, but as I said, it enables us to be able to comprehend what it is that God is doing at this time, in this age, and how John 3 helps us to answer this question. In John chapter 3, we see a power unleashed. Verse 8, look with me if you would. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, how is it that God has seen fit to work in response to man's fall into sin and the chaos and evil that was unleashed upon the world? In response to this, he decided to send his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to live life fully in accordance with God's law. He never lied. 
He never looked upon a woman lustfully. He never disobeyed. He never questioned God the Father. He never lapsed in faith. He was obedient to the law of God in its totality and in his entirety. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 5 that he did this so that he could offer himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, a sinless, perfect, a spotless sacrifice, taking the curse of sin upon himself. We read this in John chapter 3. I didn't reference it because Pastor Jason referenced it and already explained it. He, just as, just as the bronze snake in the Old Testament, a type of him, he goes to the cross, this perfect, spotless, sinless life, and he offers himself as a sacrifice, taking the curse and judgment of sin upon himself. And then he dies. But three days later, he's resurrected from the grave. God the Father vindicating him, demonstrating that it is truly his holy, righteous son, and that there was no sin in him. And in doing that, he poured out his spirit upon, uh, upon his people. And now all those who trust in the work of Christ are given the spirit, are indwelt by the spirit, are brought to new life. And now because the indwelling spirit of God, because the indwelling presence and power of God, those of us who have trusted in Christ, we can live not according to the old man, according to the old creation, according to old ways, but we can live according to God's kingdom, according to the work of the spirit, according to God's law, according to the new creation. He has seen fit to work in this way so that he could call out people renew them in the midst of the old humanity and the midst of the old order and demonstrate before the eyes of the world what the kingdom is really like, what the new creation is really like, what the indwelling power and presence of the spirit is really like. So now we see a power unleashed. For those who trust in the gospel of Christ, we are indwelt by the spirit of God. The spirit is renewing our characters and molding us more into the likeness of Jesus. So that out in the old creation, in the old order, among old humanity, we get to shine as lights of the coming kingdom and to show what a kingdom of true righteousness and justice and mercy looks like. We get to gather on Sundays and worship the power and presence of this, this kingdom of God that's coming in its fullness in the future, but has made its way now has made its power and presence known now in our lives so that we can demonstrate to the world what this really is all about. Instead of responding with spite and with revenge when we are done wrong, according to the power of the indwelling spirit, we can respond as creatures and citizens of the new creation and respond with grace, respond with mercy, and not respond with the intent of revenge. When people lie to us, instead of taking it personally and seeking to get them back, we can now respond as Christ responded, thus demonstrating the power of the new creation of the coming kingdom. We see here in John 3 essentially three things. We see a new identity that we've been given. 
that is citizens of God's new creation kingdom and not this world. We see that this new birth in this kingdom has given us new relationships to God and to others. But lastly, we see that it's given us a new mission. We no longer view ourselves as just citizens of the old order of old creation, living as we please. Rather, we are citizens demonstrating the new creation and the power and presence of God's spirit. And he has given us a mission at this time and in this age to witness to it, to proclaim it, and to demonstrate it through our lives and through our deeds. He has given us the privilege of living as citizens of the new creational kingdom among the nations. And this is why we take the gospel to the nations, to live as renewed, reborn citizens of God's people, of God's kingdom, and demonstrate even to them the kingdom of God will soon come in its fullness. And this is what it looks like. This is the power manifest in it. Trust in Jesus and you too can join. So what does this mean for us? This means this new identity, these new relationships, this new mission that God's kingdom work has given to us. This means, first of all, in our relationships, we have to first and foremost view ourselves as citizens of God's kingdom and not kingdom uh, citizens of the kingdom of this world. And that shapes the way in which we interact with friends and family and coworkers. When we go into the voting booth, we cannot view ourselves merely as citizens of America, of the USA, but we have to go into the voting booth knowing we're, all, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we, though it is imperfect, we want to secure righteousness and justice for all people and not just my tribe and what I want because our ethics and our values are shaped by the new creational kingdom of God. And lastly, this means that we are calling forth others to join into this kingdom of God. John shows us in John chapter 3 that, yes, even the religious, the righteous people, those who think that they are morally upright and put together, financially secure, they need it. And also the broken down and trodden. It's not coincidence that in the very next chapter, a Samaritan woman is called out for her sinfulness and for her immorality. And, and she, J John is showing to us that even those who are broken are, need the gospel, need to enter into this kingdom of God. So we get to go out as citizens of this kingdom and proclaim all can enter, all can believe, and all need to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John chapter 3. Thank you for the word that you give us there. And though imperfectly articulated, we ask that you would use it to strengthen and encourage us and enable us to live as citizens of your uh, kingdom, characterized by new creational power. Enable us to live righteously, to demonstrate this kingdom to others in Troy and in all the world. In Christ's name, amen.